Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. If you could get a jacket patch that had the Crafts logo on it, that was massive. And that said so much about who you were and who you connected with and what you listened to and how you expressed yourself. And now you could get that at Urban Outfitters. You know, it's fashion. And so I think that it just shifted from, you know, music being identity to non-identity. I'm Justin Jay. As a photographer, I've gotten to shoot rock stars, hip-hop moguls, world-class athletes, and some other truly extraordinary subjects. I'm fascinated by the backstories and life experiences that help shape these compelling people. The right photograph can reveal quite a lot about someone, but some stories can't be told with just a picture. Sometimes you need to sit down, listen, and dig a little deeper. This is The Plug. If you took a walk down the Haight-Ashbury district in 1968, you could immediately identify who was opposed to the Vietnam War and who supported Richard Nixon. Whether it was shoulder-length hair during the Summer of Love or Doc Martens in 1984, there were indicators that telegraphed a lot about your beliefs and your identity. These visual cues helped to signal a tacit membership of a certain group and were worn with an appreciation and knowledge of the cultures that they originated from. But today, you might find Kim Kardashian in a Thrasher t-shirt or a toddler wearing a Wu-Tang onesie. Bands and brands belong to anyone now, sometimes without much understanding of their history or significance. Today's guest co-founded DC Shoes and was the creative force behind the brand's groundbreaking artist collaborations and its dedicated following amongst core skaters. 
But in 2004, DC was sold to Quicksilver and growth became one of the key objectives under new leadership. DC slowly became a staple of downscale retailers like TJ Maxx. Eventually, it developed a mall shopping fan base that seemed to be more familiar with Abercrombie than Alva. Music and design still play a large role in our guest's life, but why did the taillights of a Toyota Prius bother him so much? We'll find out as we sit down for a conversation with someone who's had a front row seat for the proliferation of an entire clothing category known simply as streetwear. Today, entrepreneur, designer, audiophile, and brand builder, Mr. Damon Way. Damon Way, thank you for sitting down, man. I really appreciate this. Yeah, um, excited to, to dig in. Um, first of all, this, this is an absolutely stunning house that we're in here, and I heard that you built it from the ground up, so I just want to get into a, a quick minute of some of the complications of, of building a house like this. I know we talked a little bit on the way in, so there must never be a situation where the house is finally done, and you sit down with a glass of champagne, and you're like, all right, it's finished. Is it, I mean, does it just go on forever? Yeah, I mean, the, the details of a house never quite get resolved. You know, it's kind of an ever-expanding, um, you know, palette of refinement and obsession, you know, sort of an OCD on, you know, getting things perfect. But like anything, you're always battling entropy. So the things you solve today uh, break down tomorrow or the next thing breaks down. So, you know, it's, 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 it's less about total resolution and more about ongoing maintenance. It just must be such a very different experience building something like this from the ground up as opposed to, you know, a lot of yeah. people with, with, with loot, they, they buy a house that's already finished <clears throat> like this, yeah. sometimes even furnished, and they just move in and go to sleep. You know, um, I, I've been through a couple of remodels in my life, and they are just as difficult as, as building from the ground up. But what I've always found is, um, you know, like most things that, I, that I've done in my life, I, I really want to start from a zeroed out baseline, you know, sort of let's start from the beginning, let's develop a concept, let's build into it, and then realize it, you know, ultimately through um, its output. And whether it's like building, you know, a, a t-shirt graphic or a shoe or a song or whatever it is, it's like, yeah, let's take an idea all the way through to completion and let's see if, um, you know, we've met that sort of desired output. And with this house, <laughs> um, you know, I've had a real um, attraction to, to modern architecture since I was pretty young. And as, you know, I made my way through my career and could build the means to actually build a house, um, I connected with an architect named Wallace Cunningham, who became a friend in the late 90s. You know, back then he was less known, um, but came out of Taliesin West, um, which is the Frank Lloyd Wright School of Architecture. Is yeah. there a different approach to designing and constructing a house when you're contending with ocean air and sun as opposed to, I mean, opposed to even the East Coast where yeah. the elements are much harsh? I mean, is that a huge consideration? Well, th that's kind of what I was trying to describe is, um, so when you go to Taliesin, from what I understand, the way it's been described to me is, you know, you, your first lesson is to camp out on the land for like six months and really understand how light moves across you know, the geography during the changes of the seasons, how light, you know, moves through space, how the view corridors work. Um, and, and really it sets you up to start thinking about a structure, less as something you put there and more how you build it into the harmony of the environment. 
how you really take advantage of the views, how you work with light, how light affects space, how the, how the structure becomes sort of a reflection of the way nature moves and the nature expresses itself. Did you do that here? You spent yeah. a lot of time? Well, I, I, the architect I work with, Wally, is trained that way. So, you know, he spent a lot of time on the land, really understanding how the sun moves across it, you know, how to maximize the views of the ocean and the surrounding geography. So, yeah. so That's fascinating. You know, so if you, if you spend some time in here, even, even throughout the day, you can really get a sense of how light affects it and how it moves through the space. But if you spend six months here, the setup now and the way we get light moving through it completely changes. Fascinating. Well, beautiful house. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so I have a confession. I was doing some research for this show, and I had always been under the impression that the D and the C in DC shoes stood uh, for Danny and Colin. Um, that must be a popular misconception. I mean, did you fight hard to correct that, or did that something that worked well for the brand? I, you know, it, it's, it's, it's probably one of the most serendipitous things to ever happen in branding. When, you know, Ken and I were first thinking about DC shoes, we were, you know, sort of deep in drawers clothing. You know, the, the initial idea wasn't to create something totally different, but to create a footwear category for drawers initially. And our first shoes were actually drawers clothing shoes that we made through Vans in the, I think it's the, um, the Anaheim uh, factory back then, or the Irvine, I can't remember. But we really liked the phonetics of DC. It had a really strong sort of delivery and the way it sounded. And, you know, it was easy to just pull the acronym or the initials from Joris Clothing and place it as sort of DC, DC shoes. And weirdly, and this is going to sound funny, but only years later did we start to realize how that mapped onto Danny and Colin um, as the two first, um, you know, athletes and sort of partners in the brand that we launched with. That's so funny. It kind of reminds mm. me of like when uh, the electronics brand LG did their mm. big rebrand in right. the 90s. You know, everyone thinks it's life is good, mm. but it's a Korean brand. It's actually Lucky Gold Star, but they kind of. <laughs> I didn't know that. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I think for a lot of people, um, you know, people I think are always trying to un, uh, decode acronyms, you know, like what, what, what does it mean? And I think for, it was really easy for people to, oh, it's Danny and Colin because we launched the brand with them. Um, but yeah, stores clothing. <laughs> So, you know, I'm, I'm friendly with both Bob Hurley and Sean Stussy, and yeah. they both have had similar experiences with developing and growing a brand with their name in it and then selling that brand and watching it kind of morph into something completely different, yeah. uh, whether that's through growth or some might argue even core credibility. Um, now, obviously, your name is not actually in the brand DC, but, you know, you and your brother are so inextricably linked <laughs> to that brand. Talk to me about what it's like to put so much passion into growing and developing a brand and then sell it and then have to stand by and watch other people make creative decisions that you probably wouldn't have made yourself. What's that like? Yeah, that's, um, that's a tricky emotional hurdle to get through. And it took, it took me a number of years to really reconcile how I felt about DC um, and the sort of control we gave up in terms of placing it in the market and managing that positioning in a way that was really disciplined. You, you know, you get caught up in the excitement of doing a, a deal, like it was, I think, our first one, and it was really fun, and you definitely get this, like, endorphin thing going, and you get caught up in it. And then literally the day after it was announced, I woke up the next morning with what felt like an emotional hangover. I was like, what? you know, I was this, like, all of a sudden reality just 
came into like the sharpest version of reality. And I was like, what did we just do? You know, and it was almost like a panic feeling of like, I can't believe we just sold our brand to Quicksilver. But at that point, you're kind of like, okay, I got to reconcile this. And so it took some time to really get my, my head around it in a way where I could operate within it, um, not from the, the desire and need for ownership in it or for control of it, but to really just work in the best way I could to, to, to maximize the benefit and impact um, on the brand. But over time, um, that became more difficult because, you know, Quicksilver's objectives were misaligned maybe with ours, um, meaning, you know, they're a public company. They have to, um, you know, consistently maintain certain growth expectations to perform well in the public market. And with the three brands they had at the time, which was Quicksilver, Roxy, and DC, you know, the owner, the ownership group, management group of, of Quicksilver or board riders was less emotionally connected to DC. So it became easier for them to push DC into sort of down-channel retail or downstream retail, meaning JCPenney, Ross, to really pump the numbers and the performance to offset the lack of growth around Quicksilver and Roxy at the time. So it became really a difficult pill to swallow, you know, as we got deeper into that and we could see the negative impact on the brand, the positioning, and kind of unraveling like everything Ken and I had done for the, you know, first whatever, 15 years of the brand to really position it well. Have you watched the Von Dutch documentary by any chance? I did, yeah. It, it seems like mm. that movie is, a, it's almost like a case study in how to take a brand and destroy it through unfettered growth and greed. You know, and, and it yeah. really illustrates perfectly the conflict between the stakeholders, the people that mm. want to make money with this brand. I mean, there's yeah. people they have to answer to. And then the people who also understand that, the ethos and the culture and the value of a brand can be intangible and it's not just infinitely scalable. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I think what I learned, what I come to appreciate out of that whole experience was the discipline and commitment to longevity of a brand and to resist growth opportunity to maintain that objective, that sort of longevity desire and I've always had, you know, tremendous appreciation for Stussy as a, as a brand that has really maintained a certain growth level in a way that has committed them to the long term versus, you know, short term gain, you know, at the detriment of the brand long term. Yeah. Um, and I and I really appreciate that sort of sweet spot in the market where you have a great brand, you have good revenue, you make a good living from it. And that's all you really need. If you can continue to innovate and position well season over season or year over year, you, you, have, a, you have such a long-term play behind you that isn't going to you know, sort of spike and then fizzle. And then, so it's much easier said than done. It, it's really difficult because, as you mentioned, greed and this desire for more. It seems like it's also difficult, too, because as you scale up, there's more capital involved. And when you have outside investors who don't have an emotional attachment to the brand, there's a lot of conflicting interests of how that brand should operate. Is that, is that a fair statement? Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think that that would be um, the case with any scenario that if you have something you're not emotionally connected to that you could sacrifice for the greater good, it's going to be a lot easier than, than sacrificing the thing that you built with love and effort and attention and commitment for decades. Yeah. I mean, even what, look at, you know, what happened to Hurley in the last couple of years yeah. of them basically just being eaten up by equity group and 
now they're in TJ Maxx and they have mouse pads and <laughs> socks and air fresheners and what yeah, have you. And, and, and I feel like it's funny because it's actually ironic that it's short-sighted. The reason that that brand had value in the first place is what, you know, what Bob and, and Nike were able to cultivate. Yeah. And it's almost like a cash crop. Like that brand will be incredibly valuable for five years at TJ Maxx, and then it will slowly become worthless. Yeah. You know, the, the biggest thing that I think brands overlook in this, you know, whatever it is, whether it's the founders that are pushing growth or the acquirer that's pushing growth is when you get beyond the core market and that foundational layer to your brand, which, you know, is endemic, it's tribal, and you start to tip into these mass market, you know, revenue opportunities or, or retail channels, it starts to move into fashion and fad, you know, and what they don't realize is that, you know, that endemic customer that is going to back you year over year over year fades as you move into this broader market. And the, and the new customer is interested because it's on MTV this week or it's in this or that, it's in a rap song, like whatever it is, there's something driving it at a fad level. It's absence of the loyalty that it, it, it was originally. It, yeah, because it's fat, it has it has a shelf life, and so you have this short term gain, and it's inevitably going to fail over time because you don't have that that foundational endemic commitment that is there for you year over year. So, from a, a marketing and design standpoint, I want to get your take on on Supreme and Vans because I'm I'm really fascinated by both of those brands, and it seems like. A lot of luxury brands, they try and cultivate this allure through a high price point. In other words, these Balenciaga sneakers are ugly as fuck, but yeah. you can't afford them. Therefore, they're exclusive and there's an allure attached to them. Right. Um, so, you know, Supreme doesn't really do that. If you can actually get your hands on their product, it's relatively affordable, at least, you know, on the first market. One of the tools that they use is limited supply. And Vans doesn't really do either of those two things. And they've been able to maintain their place in the market for 50 plus years as a cool brand. Like I'm wearing them right now. Like, why do you, why do you think that is? Why have they been able to do that? Well, first off, they, they haven't been able to maintain that position for 50 years. Um, In the nineties, we almost put them under DC did. Um, They couldn't react quick enough to a rapidly evolving technical shoe market. um, And they were ultimately sold through private equity to avoid bankruptcy. Interesting. Um, okay. And so the 90s were really challenging for Vans. Um, they completely lost their position. They weren't able to compete. You know, it was DC, Etnies, DVS um, that were really dominating the market and S. And Vans really had no play. Um, what reignited Vans was the, the push back to simpler shoes to vulcanize profiles like chucks and, and low top bands or high tops or whatever it is, but like cup soles and chucks and that trend back to that simpler shoe in I'd say 2010 to 14 really gave Vans a tremendous opportunity to reposition the brand and open up new markets like hip hop markets and stuff like that. Yeah. I mean, it's in its current mm. incarnation. It's yeah. like they maintain the sense <laughs> of cool, neither with a high price point yeah. or through low supply, which yeah. seems it's, I would imagine very difficult to do. Yeah, I mean they're 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 an anomaly as a brand. They were able to reposition themselves in that very coveted spot of being able to drive scale, but also uh, loyalty and credibility at a very foundational level within these endemic markets. Do you think the traditional business model of 
building a brand on celebrity or athletic endorsement? Do you think that's a thing of the past? It seems like at the very least in the surf space, the notion that you could throw a bunch of money at a surfer and they would wear your board shorts and then kids would want to buy those board shorts. It seems very antiquated. Like, do you, do you think that that, that business model is dead? I don't know. I, I, I don't know if it's completely dead. I think it's just evolved. I mean, we, we've transitioned from a time where brands and media controlled the narrative to the individuals controlling the narrative and brands falling in underneath that now. Brands aren't necessarily wagging the market through controlled media anymore. Um, the individual is. And so if, I think if you can, I, like I don't think celebrity or athlete endorsement is a failed model now. I think it's just maybe not so hedged on an individual, but how you collectively build a story um, through a number of individuals. And I think of uh, like a couple of brands, like in skateboarding specifically, that have done such a good job of this is like, you know, Jason Dill with FA and Anthony, you know, Ave with um, hockey and in that whole like allure they build around that, which is more, it's more community, more of a community vibe than any one individual. And I think kids buy into that and they're attracted to it. Well, let me ask you this, like in the skate space, how important is a skate team for a skate brand? Cause it seems like it, like traditionally with surf brands, They've always had marquee riders. They've always had sponsor surfers. But it seemed like the brand was always bigger than the athletes. Like Quicksilver existed before and after Kelly Slater. Whereas a lot of skate brands, it seems like, especially the smaller ones, that they're really built on the backs of the credibility of those core skaters. Is that, is I, that a fair I, statement? Yeah, I, I think surfing has is, is always been more inherently mainstream. Unless, you know, maybe in the early days, the statement wouldn't stand up. But I think skateboarding is just more endemically tribal. Like I think that in skateboarding, I think the, the skateboard brands are the flywheel of the culture. And I think there's a lot, lot of tribal identity within the culture around what you associate yourself with in terms of brand, in terms of that collective of athletes that, that back into that brand or skateboarders, I should say, not athletes. And I think that it's very different than surfing, where surfing seems a lot more diluted. It just seems like it's much bigger. It's more ESPN. Um, it's got much bigger mainstream audience and viewership. Um, and there are some smaller brands that have tried to do it. You know, I think like, what's the brand I'm thinking of? Hold on. Uh, talking about former? Yeah. yeah. You know, like smaller brands, you know, like the Dane Reynolds, you know, is built with Ando. Like former, I, I think they've tried to really adopt that kind of skate model, that, you know, more ground level kind of endemic. Skateboarding has always been deeply subversive and it's always had a pretty strong intersection with music. Um, and in the 70s and 80s, it was, you know, deeply connected to punk rock and, and it had, you know, a lot of the same kind of brand communication, identity and tribal markers, you know, that, 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 that punk rock had. And as we moved into the 90s, it became much more correlated with hip hop and, and like sort of urban culture and, and more city, sort of the city underground, graffiti, et cetera. Um, I, I feel like skateboarding just has... Like it, ha- it has a, m- a more intrinsic cool to it, which which I think correlates with more risk, more subversion. And again, coming back to that like deep tribal identity that a lot of skateboarders are drawn into and that, that identify with. Yeah, I mean, I'm definitely going to catch shit for making a gross generalization that surfers have more style than skaters. <clears throat> but, you know, for every Alex Nose, there's 50 jockey surfers in a pickup truck, you know, going to surf. And I just feel like as a whole, 
skaters just tend to have like more intrinsic, an intrinsic sense of, of, of style. Yeah. And, and I would agree with you and we'll probably get shit for that, but um, <laughs> right, we're, we're in it together though. You're co-signing. For yeah. Me? Yeah. Well, I, I mean, like you mentioned Alex knows, like I love like his whole vibe and, and all the stuff Thomas Campbell does in the space. And, you know, there's like an amazing sort of pocket of creators and, and people that don't really buy into that sort of WSL version of surfing, you know, which I, I deeply appreciate. Yeah. Um, but to your point though, it just seems that the sort of bigger projection of surfing is much more jock oriented. And, you know, you see, you see aspects of that in skateboarding now with the Olympics and the sort of side of skateboarding that's, you know, contest oriented and gunning for that, you know, that Olympic opportunity, which is very different than like what's going on in New York with Strobeck and his whole scene. And, you know, it's, it's just two different, two different subcultures. I think have, has the element of, of, of coaching and, and diet and sponsorship had as large of an effect in skateboarding. Has that started to creep in with, with the, the Olympics? As, yeah. I mean, as there's, it surf? you know, it comes back to that, like, you know, sort of jock mentality of like, we're going to train, we're going to eat right. We're gonna, and it's nothing wrong with all that. It just, for me, like the way I grew up in skateboarding, it just runs contrary to the kind of ethos and um, attitude of skateboarding. But I guess if you're going to compete at that level, at that world-class athletic level, like it's, it's, I think it's required yeah. Um, but I, I guess that's the difference. Like on one side, you have, you know, skateboarders that are really, you know, a skateboard community and culture that's really defined by expression, creativity, you know, a lot, a lot more cultural nuance. And then on the other side, you have kids that are really athlete oriented, that are training, that are gunning for those trophies and medals. And it's a, I think it's a completely different type of skateboarding with regard to the way you show up, the way you express yourself, what you're, what you're um, associating yourself with from a cultural perspective. Yeah. I mean, I have great respect for both sides yeah. of, of that, of that cultural equation. But it's just, it's a little bit ironic that skateboarding and surfing for the most part grew as a result of people not wanting to be in organized sports or not wanting to be part of the establishment yeah. or not wanting to have to compete. Yeah. Full, full counterculture roots on both sides. Yeah. Of it. Talk to me about your current role at Sing. Yeah, so, so Sing is a project that um, my, my friend Chris Stringer and I embarked on four years ago. And Chris uh, worked at Apple under Johnny Ive as a designer for a couple of decades. Um, and then retired and, you know, over the course of a year or two years, wanted to get back in it because um, he missed the, the creative process and collaboration and, and working to build ideas. And so we started this home audio brand called Sing, that in the beginning was really just let's make a really beautiful speaker for the for the house, um, and as we got into it, we realized that that audio technology was dragging very far behind what was going on in visual tech, which was AR, VR, mixed media, that kind of kind of more immersive media formats, uh, where audio is still stuck in this like Dolby five one stereo kind of paradigm. And so, as we were getting into it, we said, well, why don't you know, why don't, why don't we try to unwind, you know, that restraint that ex- currently exists in, in the audio market and, and kind of back up in the process of uh, creation production to figure out, like, where, where, it, where it's the most expressed, where it's the most free, and see if we can build a system to support that. And so what I'm getting at is, you know, when, when you're working on in a session, you know, in, in a studio with a producer, um, you get to a point where you have everything multi-tracked and you have it organized into stems. And then you take that 
you know, where you're at there. And then you, you basically mix it down to a stereo, a stereo track, you know, and, and then that's what gets shipped. That's what gets heard. That's what you hear on Spotify and Apple music. So we, we took a step back and figured out a way to actually distribute stems through our system and be able to play stems and allow the listener to actually interact with the music and augment the music such that the listener had agency over what they were hearing and experiencing. And so for us, you know, that, that was a big unlock because it really presented this opportunity of why don't we build a system that can deliver agile sound, you know, to the end user or the listener such that they can augment it in their environment to their taste or their, their spec or preference. Um, and then ultimately that will compile with visual tech such that you can have an immersive audiovisual experience and have complete control of the media that you're experiencing. And so from a, from a design and branding standpoint, is there a difference in the way you develop an electronics brand as opposed to a clothing company? Because it would seem with, you know, with, with speakers, obviously design is an incredibly yeah. important factor. But as long as you continue to put out quality product, it would seem that in theory you could continue to just grow that company indefinitely. Whereas selling something like shoes or a streetwear brand it's so intrinsically linked with a lifestyle. And the thing is, you don't want everyone to be able to have your lifestyle. That's the whole point. I mean, at some point, it seems like there's almost an inherent paradox. Like, is it, is it a different approach? Um, I, I would back up for, from that specific um, question and, and talk about what our objectives were with building an audio brand and how we position it in the market. So in the same way that, that streetwear brands have you know, a shelf life based on fat or fashion or whatever it is, tech also does. It's based on how quickly tech's evolving and being reimagined year over year. So your iPhone five years ago doesn't hold up to today, even though it was pretty remarkable then. So we have the same, you know, like tech has the same kind of pressure. But still, at the same time, iPhone, as long as it continues mm. to be on the cutting edge of technology, does not become uncool because everybody has it in the same sense mm. that maybe a sneaker or a street. I mean, what you're really talking about is commodity. You know, when something goes from being unique and special and yours to everybody's and almost like commodity and then goes through the life cycle of being cool and then being dismissed. So kind of getting back to what we were doing or what we set out to do is, you know, we, we really looked at the audio market, home audio market, and how it had been um, presented over the last, you know, 40, 50 years, you know, going back to the 70s. And so much of it is about audio tech and under the hood specs and, you know, very male, you know, older male kind of view of like, yeah, we're going to we're going to get after those specs and the watts and the DBs and all that kind of stuff. And we wanted to pull back from that and really just like talk about or communicate the experience and have it connect with creator communities, with design, music, fashion and art and really present it as such um, that it's much more of a lifestyle home audio company than something that's like very spec and tech driven. Um, tell me some specific things about the, the product that, that differentiates it from, from other, other speakers in the category. So I mentioned um, the, the STEM stuff earlier. So, th- so that's in our roadmap and is not commercial yet. So where we're at today is we have, a, like our speaker is basically a computer that plays sound. And it has these incredible algorithms that algorithmically spatialize stereo into an immersive audio experience. So you can stream Spotify or Apple Music, and instead of hearing it coming from a place in the room, um, you actually find yourself inside the sound, and it's spatialized in a way that, that puts sound all around you in a, in a very detailed way. 
Yeah. And did, how, how did you go about designing something like that? There's a difference between mm-hmm. uh, an aesthetic design and then obviously the, the internal tech that you're talking about. I mean, did you have a background in that? No, I, I didn't design the product. I'd, I'd, have to, um, I'd have to give, you know, Chris Stringer, my, my partner on this, um, credit for the product and then a former partner um, that, that we had started with. But, you know, my, my role in it is more about building brand, building desire, building positioning, um, connecting it to these communities that we aspire to support and participate in. And how has the response been so far? It's been fantastic. It's been really good. Um, and it's available, you, you sell online in stores? Yeah, we, we sell, you know, directly through our website, singspace.com, and then uh, we're starting to distribute into third-party retail. Like, so we're in the MoMA stores right now, we're in hi-fi shops, um, some broader uh, consumer electronics retailers. Um, so I'm wondering, you know, how, how important is design to you on an everyday level? Like for, for me personally, I walk around New York City and if there's like mm. a corner Thai restaurant or a mom and pop dry cleaners and their yeah. awning has like comic sans or papyrus typeface, it just, it, it makes me cringe, you know? And then conversely, my wife will be with me and as long as the store has like a clear glass bottle with a wood top and like a cactus. She's like, Ooh, this place looks amazing. You know, it's like, it makes you, it makes you feel a certain way. Like talk to me about how that works. You know, I I have a lot of visual sensitivity and I think working in product design for so many years really sort of tuned my like visual or at least my desire for visual harmony, you know, in, in terms of the way things are aesthetically balanced or the way objects occupy space looking to minimize, you know, the noise. Um, and I think shooting photographs really helped me to see that too. I feel like whenever I'm shooting photographs, I'm always looking for the, 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 the simplest background such that it doesn't um, confuse or dilute the subject that, that I'm interested in. Um, but to your point, yeah, I, I look at everything. everything. Everything is, you know, it's like, it's like I have like an auto judgment filter in my mind that's constantly cycling everything I'm, I'm bringing in from a visual perspective. Can you give me some examples of, of things that make you cringe from a design perspective? Oh, God. Um, this is going to sound funny, but I, I get really um, tuned into taillights on cars, and especially at night when they're on. And there's some, I think some Toyota ones that are just, bon- I mean, they're so bad. And I'm just like, I'm try- I always try and place myself in the environment where these are being designed and the round table that's approving them. And I'm like, like these companies are huge with infinite resource. How do they not have more design discipline and chops and talent in their organizations such that they can put more effort into this? And, you, and you'll notice it. Like if you go look at a lot of the lower price cars, it just seems like lower price cars have terrible taillight design for whatever reason. And why is that? Why does Audi and Porsche and Mercedes and all these high-end ones have really good taillight design. It's fascinating. You know, like, uh, yeah, yeah, t- take a look sometimes. Um, and, I, and I think housing, too. You know, I think a lot of housing is, you know, really perplexes me, especially, you know, these, you know, developed communities that are just, you know, there's four styles and they're all, you know, stucco. And So do you <clears> think <throat> that most bad design is, is lack of attention to taste or bad taste? I don't think the bad taste side is intentional. I think a lot of it is driven by uh, P&L. I think a lot of it is driven by profit. And I think a lot of it, you know, a lot of bad decisions that we see is a result of opportunism by people that aren't qualified to make creative decisions. So, I mean, with regard to mm-hmm. the taillight example, do you think that's, that's a product of them not having the resources to put the time and energy into that? Or did somebody actually consciously choose to make those shitty designs? Well, that, that was their idea. Of that's good a good design. question. I mean, you think of, 
you know, like a Toyota or, you know, like a big company like that, they have infinite resources to get the best designers to work on that specific part of the car. Why does the Prius taillight look so terrible? <laughs> um, do you, can you point to one, one of your biggest mistakes or miscalculations that you've made as a designer? Do you look back at the work mm. that you've created over the last, you know, 10, you know, 15 I, years? Are you, are you here, generally proud of it overall, or is there some lemons that you're like, oh, I wish I had here, here's, here's one thing that, that I, I deeply regretted. Um, in the, you know, early, mid-90s, um, we ended up with three dominant brands. We had Drawers Clothing, we had Dub Brand Outerwear, and we had DC. And it was like an amazing trifecta of brands. And Ken and I had this third partner, which was this, this older accountant guy, and he had run all these numbers and realized that, you know, more than half of the resources of the company were being pointed at drawers and dub, which were maybe 20% of the revenue. So he talked us into more or less abandoning drawers and dub, which we ended up selling to World Industries, um, and to focus 100% on DC. For me, that was one of those regrettable agreements that I made, given my love and 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 commitment to those two brands and how much I put into them to, to, to build them from a, like a product aesthetic point of view and just an overall brand vibe. If I could, you know, go back and rewind that, I would definitely have fought that and held on to those two brands such that we built DC drawers and dub as a collective. I mean, does that point back to what we were talking about before <clears throat> with, you know, with Von Dutch and, and, and having to answer to shareholders? I mean, are there scenarios sometimes when you're building a brand where it's just counterintuitive, you're like, it doesn't matter that, this brand is eating up more resources than this brand. Like it, it, we have to stick with this and and, and, and in the end it ends up paying off. Well, there's always going to be a battle between what, what would be considered emotional um, or intangible and what is tangible and pragmatic. And I think that when you tip too far to one or the other, you put yourself in great danger of, of being able to survive the short or long term. I think finding a sweet spot where you're taking into, into account both sides of it, but can optimize against that is, is the real opportunity. So it, it's not as like cut and dry as the Von Dutch or the non-Von Dutch. It's really like for us, it would have made great business sense on one side to consolidate around what's working best for us, but it also makes a lot of sense to diversify um, and really support each brand with its own set of resources and its own commitments such that we don't have all their eggs in one brand basket. So I, you could kind of argue it both ways. Yeah. The other thing that, you know, I, 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 you know, we talked about it earlier, but I think Ken and I selling DC was a, a massive regret, you know, because what we realized is we were a couple of years into it that we had this tremendous brand, this incredible platform that we could have built ourselves and, and probably taken public our, on our own. And, what is something that you're most proud of that you've contributed to building a brand? Like, what would you say is your, your core skill set or talent that, that you bring to the table? I have, a, I have a very big risk appetite with brands, and I like to try new things, and I like to try and innovate into levels of, of discomfort. Because I think that's where you really find opportunity to, to impact or to influence markets in new ways. Um, and one of those things that, that I've always been, you know, really proud of is um, pushing into artist collaboration before any other brand was doing it. And if you go back to the late 90s into 2000, um, I created a program called DC Artist Projects. And this is before Nike, Adidas, or any other brand, footwear brand, had been working with artists in a collaborative way. 
And so I kicked that pro- project off in 2000 with Shepard Ferry because he's a friend and like, hey, let's just like, I love what you do. You like what we do. Let's just bring our talent together and creativity together and build something together. So we built a shoe, which was the first artist shoe to hit the market. And then I followed that quickly with a collaboration with Cause. And so if you look at like the, the, the sort of trajectory around artist related projects in footwear, it took, I think, Nike a year or two years to react to that with, with, with Hayes and Futura, I think Stash. But that was something that really kind of backed in that idea of like, let's do something different. You know, we work with skateboarders in really compelling ways from like a pro model and a collaboration perspective. But there's this whole amazing world of artists. Like, let's work with them in the same capacity and let's create like a new way to introduce art through a product category. I mean, it's funny. This, mm-hmm. It seems in retrospect, mm-hmm. something that's so obvious. And, and then from today's perspective, it's almost become like a cliche where you have, you know, McDonald's doing limited edition milkshakes oh, and, you know, like every artist collaborating with every, you know, it, it's, it's, it's so overused now. Yeah. We, we did a lot to innovate and steer markets. Um, and, you know, I think a lot of the bigger brands get credit for that. The Nikes of the world um, because they have a bigger mouthpiece and a bigger platform to communicate from. But um, yeah, we did, we did a ton. I mean, even going back to the early nineties, we, um, we had our first brand Ken and I did was called eight ball and it was like a graffiti skate apparel brand. And at the time there were no other apparel brands in skateboarding because skateboarding had basically uh, collapsed in the late eighties. And we kind of came out of those ashes with, with eight ball and drawers and the brands we were doing. And we were like the only vertical apparel brand. Our only competitors were New Deal and Blind with the jeans they made back then, Blind jeans and New Deal yeah. jeans. But with um, 8-Ball, you know, it was kind of at the, the beginning of snowboarding and snowboarding starts starting to develop as a culture and an industry. And so we started making 8-Ball um, snowboard stuff. And we were never happy with the pants back then because they were always elastic waist and they're like OP or whatever, and they were really bad. And so we took our drawers denim pattern and then we got supplex or whatever. And we made snow pants with our drawers uh, denim pattern. We introduced that as like a five pocket snow pant. And that absolutely changed the industry. The next year, every other company had that, that style, you know, basically leading their, their, their collections. I mean, that's a fantastic example of you having an eye for a detail, whether it's an elastic waistband or a taillight that just bothered you and the marketplace responded, you know very positively, obviously. Yeah. And then we, we, we followed that, um, you know, with drawers, you know, we, even what was going on in denim then it's like either blind jeans or new deal jeans. There were always this like PFD, you know, dyed bold, bold denim, which is like a really low quality denim. And I really wanted to build something that was, you know, kind of world-class, something that could really compete at like a Levi level in terms of a denim make and execution. And so I got really into kind of researching and understanding the European denim brand, workwear brands at the time, Diesel and Replay mainly. Um, and back then they were very much workwear brands. They weren't kind of what you see today in this kind of um, arbitrary or you know, whimsical fashion stuff. But they were really good then. So really studied Diesel and, and built the whole denim, like George's denim line, kind of after this, um, this one particular style they had called the saddle. And that kind of led to that aesthetic, that denim aesthetic that you saw in skateboarding that was, you know, kind of baggy with like a slight taper that stacked at the top of your shoes. And it became kind of like, it was different than rave, like rave denims were straight all the way down and covered your feet. But like the way that drawers denim kind of established that aesthetic was really built on, yeah, like really 
learning and understanding like what the European, European workwear brands were doing then and adapting that to our culture and, and, and utility. Which is ironic because now, you know, workwear brands like Carhartt have gone the other way. Yeah, <laughs> totally. fashion brands. Oh, yeah. it's amazing. But yeah, so that, that's kind of where that whole like um, profile, that denim profile came from. That's like baggy with a slight taper and a stack at the top of your shoe. And then it just got more and more extreme. I yeah. remember I got a bag of swag from, I won't say what brand, but I tried these jeans on. I'm like, how are they too big and too small at the same time? It's like, it made no sense. Yeah. And then, you know, and I've had a couple of really amazing periods. Like, so with drawers and dub, I needed help. And I, I hired Ali Asha, a workamore who, who was, who lived in New York and, and worked for a couple of streetwear brands, I think Mecca and um, Fat Farm. And then, so he moved out to San Diego and joined me. And so him and I worked on drawers and dub together from like 96 to 98 and it was deeply explosive because we took a lot of, you know, this East Coast sensibility with the sort of street level fashion environments he was in. And we brought him into like snow and we built this whole aesthetic around dub that was like something that came from the New York City subways to like the, the sort of, hill, you know, the, the snowboard hills. Um, well, so we always like to end this conversation by asking our guests to plug something that they feel isn't getting enough exposure, something that they're right. not directly involved in, whether it's a book, a movie, an artist, a cause. Um, is there something you want to shout out to to give some attention? I mean, for me, I mean, we, we never really talk about music too much, but for me, music has been probably the most dominant filter in my life in terms of informing my own creativity, my perspective of culture, expression, individuality. And so I'm always, you know, always gunning to bring sort of awareness and light into these underground pockets within music that are doing amazing things. So there's two record labels that, that, I, that I'd love to plug in, in that respect. Um, one is called Minimal Wave, and they're a record label out of New York um, that's run by, founded and run by a woman named Veronica Vesica. And another one is from San Francisco to, called Dark Entries that's owned and run by a guy named Josh Chion. And between those two, they've done so much over the last decade to bring up all this forgotten music, overlooked music from the early 80s, you know, mostly recorded to cassettes and stuff like so that. It's, a lot, it's reissues or new artists? Yeah, well, it's, um, it's, it's almost all reissues, and it's really obscure synthwave, post-punk, or I should say minimal synth, post-punk, cold wave. You know, this sort of collection of genres that was super potent in the early 80s. Some, some late 70s, mostly the early 80s, that didn't quite break through, didn't have the kind of shine or the, the, the sort of scale that like a New Order, Depeche Mode, you know, realized ultimately through the 80s. But there's an amazing underground for this kind of music, and there's so much to be heard and experienced. Dark Entries, is that a Bauhaus reference? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And what was the name of the other label? Minimal Wave. Good. Well, definitely we'll go check those out for sure. I'm curious, what your relationship with music, have you maintained the same sense of emotional connection and passion to music as an adult as you have as a teenager? Because I find that in terms of how music shifts culture, it's not as potent as it, as, it, as it once was. I mean, it still affects people viscerally. Music is still a huge force. But to me personally, maybe not the same way because it's competing with movies, TV, video games, Instagram, social media. I mean, what do you, what's your take on that? Well, I, I, think, uh, I think the internet did a big thing to, to shift music from identity to something you just listen to. And, and what I mean is, we grew up in a time where what you listened to also communicated what your tribal flags were, you know, how you expressed yourself, who you hung out with, 
you know, where you went to see bands play. It was very much like what, what you're into musically was also identity. I think now, you know, that, that siloed approach to music has been, has been very much diluted and spread out such that, you know, kids have access to whatever they want. They can, they can become experts in whatever they want overnight. Like we had initiation rights, so to speak. Yeah. It took time to really understand the nuance of a community and culture and to really gain knowledge about the bands, you know, and all their nuance and, and sort of backstory. And, and kids don't have that barrier to entry anymore. You know, so like, you know, something that was so precious as a kid, such as like, you know, like if you could get a, a jacket patch that had the Crafts logo on it, like that was massive. And that said so much about who you were and who you connected with and what you listened to and how you express yourself. And now you could get that at Urban Outfitters, you know, it's yeah. fashion. And so I think that it just shifted from, you know, music being identity to non-identity. Here's a question for you. With that in mind, looking back, are there some acts, some bands that you had that identification with and you listen to their music now with some perspective and you're like, wow, that's not really that great. <laughs> like you love, you love what well, the band represented in terms of your culture more than the music itself. Yeah, because I, I think when you, when you subscribe to, to a community and culture, you know, you're, you're less critical you know, about what you're hearing. It's, it's more about the um, adjacency to that and, and, and being a part of that because it's part of who you are and how you express yourself. So I, I think we probably let a lot of bands, um, you know, kind of slide in terms of their talent. But um, nonetheless, it was still as potent, you know, as, as it would be if, if they were good or bad. I mean, punk rock on its face is, is a total rebellion against, you know, technical high talent sort of music anyways. Yeah. Well, Damon, it's been a real pleasure getting to sit down and chat with you. This is an amazing, beautiful house, and I'm glad we finally got to get some face-to-face. Um, big shout-out to Ryan McGinnis, a good friend of both of ours, for putting us together. Oh, man, love that guy. And, uh, yeah, enjoy the rest of your day, man. Appreciate well, it. Thank you for the opportunity. It was a fun chat. Cheers. Thanks for listening, and a huge thanks to today's guest for dropping in. If you enjoyed this episode, do us a favor and take a minute to rate, review, follow, or subscribe. This episode of The Plug was executive produced by Peter Buckingham with original theme music by Andrew Van Weingarten and Dan Drohan. Logo design and branding by Italic at www.italic-studio.com. Sound design by Brad Worrell at Soundwag. And you can check out my photography at justinj.com. Thanks again, and be sure to tune in for future conversations.